Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Email Pete at the thepetecalendarshow.com. Last hour, we were talking about the uh, uh, the campaign. Governor Roy Cooper, my good friend Ray, is uh, has embarked upon in order to try to uh, exert enough death threats and uh, harassment and political pressure on four Republican state lawmakers so they will flip and they will support his veto. They will they will sustain his veto. He only needs one of them, one member in either chamber, and he has identified four, two from Mecklenburg, two from New Hanover, and if he can flip one of them, just get one of them, and, and according to Andrew Dunn's write-up at Longleaf Politics, uh, you should subscribe. It's a great substack. Um, I think Ted Davis, I agree with Dunn, I think that Ted Davis from New Hanover is the, the most likely suspect because he drew such a bright line about his position as a Republican candidate for office. He drew such a bright line that he would not support anything other than status quo, which is now being changed right under this proposed legislation. That he gave himself no escape hatch. All the others have a way to wiggle out of it. He doesn't. And so maybe he takes another walk like he did on the vote. Maybe he walks and he doesn't cast a vote one way or the other. That's one way to do it. You know, it's like voting present, except you're not present. Um, Dinah says... Pete, Governor Cooper said that the uh, that Republicans ran through a bill without public input. After North Carolinians voted for voter ID, Governor Cooper did not respect that, nor did it move him from his position of being against it. So let's not pretend that Governor Cooper respects the results of public input. It's a great point. <clears throat> yeah, it's a great point. He'll rewrite the rules of norms of what's acceptable and you shouldn't do that and what's healthy for the democracy and, and how much input is necessary. He'll rewrite all of that stuff in order to advance the agenda that he prefers, right? Um, I got this message on the topic from Timoteo, who says selective abortion elevates a woman to the status of the state, which traditionally has the authority to dictate who shall live and who shall die. Men do not have this authority thereby making men second-class citizens. That is inequality. Oh, that's, <clears throat> that, that's inequity. Where's the equity there? Right? Where's the equity? Maybe some guys should be able to just go around and make some of these life-and-death decisions every now and again. Oh, maybe that's what's happening with the whole uh, catch-and-release program uh, with our criminal justice system nowadays. Maybe that's, the, maybe that's what's happening there. That's the way to balance it out. Like, okay, you went and, you know, you went and murdered a couple people. Well, you know, don't worry. We're not going to throw you in jail for very long. Maybe that's the idea. I don't know. It's a good point, though. Um, Christian says, I predict Cooper might win this veto fight. North Carolina supports 12 weeks. It's a solid compromise for this purple state. But he still says Cooper might win it. 
And Mark says, don't tell me the governor's using a a dog whistle. It sounded like one. It totally did. It totally did sound like a dog whistle. <clears throat> it's not stochastic terrorism when Democrats do it. That's Democrat privilege, my friends. They get to do it. By the way, one of the senators that he has targeted, Michael Lee, found himself targeted and harassed at an event at UNC Wilmington. He's been a big uh, booster for Wilmington. And um, he's a grad. His wife is a grad, I believe. This is a carolinajournal.com by Woody White. He's talking about the roots of classroom radicalism. And he says, if you want to know where this all came from, look no further than university teacher training. The truth is there really was no debate about any of the things we are seeing in our schools right now, not over critical race theory and certainly not about gender reassignment or pronoun switches. Things have radically changed since my youngest completed elementary school in 2012, and it's finally becoming clear how it happened. Through a calculated and intentional process that bypassed broad community debate. Left-wing ideologues began indoctrinating students in the colleges of education at our state universities. Notice what he said there. It bypassed broad community debate. And he's exactly right. There was no debate about this, so we're having it now. That's what's happening now. I saw a Washington Post poll as well. And they're like shocked that on transgender issues... The majority of Americans, like to the tune of like 60 percent, 70 percent, and in some of the questions, 80 percent, they agree with the Republican positions on this stuff. Why is that? Because this is the first time they've been asked to engage in the issue. We are now engaging in the issue. This is why I always say walk towards the fight, right? If you're going to be involved in the political arena, then you walk towards the fight. You don't run from it. You make people have these discussions because through the – this is why, like, on the gun control topics, I'm always interested in having conversations with people about those topics because I feel like the more we talk about it, the more people come over to my side of the issue. And that's what the polling shows. Things have radically changed, he says, since he sent his kids to school. These are the programs where college students take required courses to become teachers. And like a virus, some of these teachers now bring the infection they receive from their college curriculums into the K-5 classrooms. This process has been mostly undetected until recently. Because of pressure applied by concerned parents, however, legislatures are taking action all across the nation now, including in North Carolina. And the education establishment is not happy. Case in point. This past week, the University of North Carolina at Wilmington's Watson College of Education announced that Senator Michael Lee from New Hanover County would be receiving an award at its yearly banquet for his bipartisan work on the Hunt-Lee Commission, the Excellence in Schools Act, as well as his work uh, procuring funding for the Isaac Bear Early College. But because it's, I don't know what, I think it's, it's it's a school for people who get up really early in the morning. I think that's the idea. Um, But because Senator Lee also supports the North Carolina Parents' Bill of Rights, 
part of which limits classroom instruction on sexuality in the youngest elementary grades, a protest was organized by Caitlin Ryan, a UNCW associate professor who spends her career pushing LGBTQ subject matter into the K-5 through grades by authoring articles like Navigating Parental Resistance. She's even co-authored a book on the subject titled Reading the Rainbow. It is described as an LGBTQ inclusive literacy instruction in the elementary classroom book. These are the, these are the, the teaching colleges. By the way, I went to Winthrop, a teaching college. They graduate a lot of educators out of that program. I took a couple classes, actually, when I considered becoming a teacher. Together with a few of her colleagues, the professor tried having the award rescinded from Michael Lee. And when that effort failed, they attempted to embarrass him by staging a walkout when he was invited to the stage to speak. The night concluded with Senator Lee and his family walking to their car as a profanity-laced gauntlet of dozens of angry people surrounded them. This is the mob that Governor Roy Cooper uses. This is why I call them the Moonbat Brigade. This is what they do. They, they threaten, they intimidate, they harass, and they say, oh, no, we're just doing it to make our voices heard and let you know that we're defending democracy. This is a mindset this is a mindset of negativism, and this is what uh, this audio clip that I pulled from Cruton, or no, it's not Cruton, Scruton, Scrouton. Oh, hang on. I forget his name. Roger something. <laughs> I've got his, I have the audio clip. I'm going to play it. He talks about this. It's a, it's a Hegelian concept, this mindset of the negative where everything is terrible, and so you see it in these terms, and so the thing must be deconstructed, reconstructed, and fixed. But the problem is, these are the thoughts that you have in your head. You view all of these things as negative. You see only the negative. So even when you assume the power, the control, even when you do it, you still aren't happy. You still aren't happy, and he explains it. Oh, hey, real quick, before I forget, Carolina Readiness Supply is prepping for its annual Heritage Life Skills event. It's coming up in July, and you can learn how to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables, all sorts of stuff. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness Supply can help. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. That's carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? All right, so the fella's name, I was trying to remember. I had the wrong document open. That was my problem. Real professional, Pete. Um, Rogers Crouton. Oh, sorry. Roger Scruton. Um, or Scruton. S-C-R-U-T-O-N. And uh, his, real, his full name is Sir Roger Vernon Scruton. He was an English philosopher and writer 
who specialized in aesthetics and political philosophy, particularly in the furtherance of traditionalist conservative views. He passed away in 2020. And here he's talking about negativism, this mindset of negativism. An explanation of this, uh, it's um, what Hegel calls the labor of the negative. Right. Uh, that um, the, the initial instinct on the left is that negative instinct, you know, that things are wrong uh, and it must, they must be rectified. They can only be rectified, however, by the seizure of power. And so we're going to seize power in order to rectify them. But once you've got the power, the negative is still there in your heart mm. because it, it's driven you all along. Right. You know, that's the thing which has inspired you. So you set about destroying things, uh, punishing people. You, indic you find classes who are to blame, you know, the Jews, yeah. the bourgeoisie, whoever right. it might be. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you don't get out of that negative structure. Right. The labor of the negative. So Christopher Rufo did a speech a couple of days ago, I guess a couple of weeks ago now, at the Matthias Corvinus Collegium in Budapest, Hungary. And um, I have the transcript. I watched it, and uh, I'm just going to kind of go over some of the highlights here rather than listen to the entire speech. He talks about the long march through the institutions. You've heard me mention this as well. He says it's a phrase that originates from the West German Marxist activist Rudi Dutschke. The United States is vulnerable to this kind of strategy. And he then proceeds to discuss the capture of state institutions from the 1960s through the present, as well as the emergence of a new left-wing bureaucratic morality and then he's going to talk about what can be done about it. He says, I think the key question that provides the foundation for all of this is the United States' long-standing commitment to the separation of church and state. It's part of our history. It's a very basic tenet of our form of government. And the idea at the time, which was developed by English philosophers and then adopted in the U.S. during and then after the Revolution, right, that this was a solution to the religious wars that had ravaged Europe for centuries. That, that, right, that we are going to have this strict separation of the church and the state, or uh, the civil society and the government. And the idea was that if you could delegate religious or theological questions to the private sphere, uh, sphere rather, and then have the government administer the state institutions in a more neutral way, that you would then, you would tamp down these religious conflicts, right? And it worked. For a long period of time, it worked. Quite brilliantly, he says. The problem is that this form of governing had three presuppositions. First, it presupposed a limited government. The idea that the government should be small and limit itself to only securing the basic liberties of the people. Number two, it presupposed a robust civil society. And that's something that we, we have always had in America, but not so much anymore. Third, it presupposed a basic consensus on Christian morality or Christian ethics. In other words, that all of the people of the time had the same sort of basic Christian ethical framework. 
even if there were debates about doctrinal issues, they could be delegated to the private society, right? to the, quote, to the church, right? To not government, but, right, okay. The problem is that all three of these conditions have now been eclipsed, right? All of the presuppositions that made this form of government possible no longer apply, he says. First, Conservatives in America have waged a 100-year campaign starting in the 30s to reduce the size of government. And except for the exception of a blip following World War II, the campaign has failed. As a percentage of GDP, the United States government spends about 45% of its economic output as government expenditure. And now the U.S. federal government spends more money as a percentage of GDP than communist China. Limited government proponents, of which I am one, we have not won. We have failed. So that presupposition has collapsed. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Christopher Rufo, in a speech in Hungary, talking about liberalism's Achilles heel. He talks about these three presuppositions that were made at our founding. That it presupposed a limited government, it presupposed a robust civil society, and it presupposed a basic consensus on Christian morality or Christian ethics. But all three of these presuppositions now have been eclipsed, he says. For example, the limited, this idea of limited government has not worked, right? Has not worked. We now spend more as a percentage of our GDP on government expenditure than China does, a communist regime, Right? It is a very strange inversion in which the most theoretically capitalist country has a larger state sector than the most theoretically communist country in the world. The second presupposition that civil society in America has been in free fall for decades. We know this scholars on the left and right are they're all in agreement. Family, community and faith organizations, civic participation. All of these things have collapsed. Social institutions since Lyndon Johnson's great society programs, right? All of these social institutions have been replaced by the state management of society. The state has taken over the function of the family, the function of the church, and the function of civic organizations. Third, the left has moved in direct opposition to a generalized Christian moral consensus. Left-wing theories on race, sex, and power have maintained that all existing social structures are forms of oppression, right? This is critical consciousness. The theoreticians have, in some ways, inverted the Christian moral ethic and replaced a transcendent conception of justice with a materialist conception of social justice, and then concluded that in order to realize this kind of society, well, we're going to have to smash all the institutions, whether it's heteronormativity, the two-parent family, or religion itself. All of these things are seen as an impediment to social justice, and so they have to be abolished. But all of this has created a moral void. People keep asking in the wake of these shootings, by the way, as an aside here, I'll point this out. People keep asking you know, why are we seeing all of this now? Is it because of all the guns? And you hear every now and again, somebody will make this argument. Something has happened in our society. 
And I would submit this is it. There is a moral void. And now this has created a very unstable social structure. We have a very large state bureaucracy. We have a very weak civil society. And we have a collapsed moral consensus. This is what we have now. The left saw this development as a great opportunity, though. Their moral ideology and their theory of revolution are explicitly secular, right? And therefore, not restricted in any way by any kind of separation of church and state, right? And they're not opposed to a large state bureaucracy, quite the contrary, right? They would like very much like to run said large state bureaucracy because that is amenable to their politics. They had one problem, though. Their ideology was not popular. <laughs> That's the Now, they think it is, but it's not. As I mentioned earlier with the polling on transgenderism and such, right? Their ideology is not popular in America, so they had to develop a plan to achieve cultural power without popular consent. And this is the origin of the long march through the institutions, Rufo says. In the 60s, American left-wing activists realized that the route to power was not through democratic participation. Oh, wait a minute. What about all of the lip service to our democracy? No, no. They knew that if they put their ideas up for a vote, they would lose. And they were proven correct on that multiple times, thanks to Richard Nixon, <laughs> right? So they said to themselves, hmm, self, what we should do is bypass the democratic process. Let's capture the state bureaucracy and push our ideology through the public universities, K-12 education, and the administrative state. The uh, unfortunate part of this is that conservatives were totally unequipped for this. The Reagan conservative line was that government was the problem and therefore conservatives should work to reduce the size of the government. But what did that do? It surrendered all state activity to the left, right? It naturalized secular leftist ideology as the de facto ideology of the state. And it then created this taboo for most conservatives that using the power of the state to achieve conservative ends was forbidden. And we hear the echoes of this, if not the explicit argument, right now. We hear it right now in these debates over K-12 uh, curriculum, you know, where apparently some people really, really want to teach sex ed to kindergartners. And when you get conservatives that get into office and they say, you know what? No, we're going to put a ban on this. <gasps> How dare you? I thought you were for limiting government. But here you are using government power. Right? And, and this makes a lot of limited government people, myself included, it makes us take pause. It makes us second guess ourselves. We go, oh, it's true. We are using government. Dang it. But Rufo says all of the presuppositions have collapsed. This is, this is a new battleground. For those who believe that government should be reduced in size, and I agree with this, it's a good idea, we should still do it. But there remain some critical unanswered questions, like what should be done with the existing state? Who's going to run it? On which ideas will it operate? And in the case of K-12 education, which principles and values should it transmit? I keep saying this. 
the government schools, like we transmit our cultural, our societal values through education. Who gets to write that script? Right? The government is already in the business, indeed has a monopoly on K-12 education. Who gets to write the curriculum? You going to just surrender that to the left? All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's Military Surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. Breaking news. A verdict has been reached in the Donald Trump trial. I don't know what it is. But we're, yeah. But that's the word that the verdict has been reached. If they... Put it out Uh, while we're still on the air. I will bring it to you then. But uh, right now, all we uh, the only information we have is that a verdict has been reached. This is the uh, the defamation trial that woman says she was raped by Donald Trump in the uh, department store. So, um, all right. So going back to this Christopher Rufo speech that he delivered in Budapest, Hungary, a couple of weeks ago, he's talking about the long march through the institutions. And how this began in the uh, 1960s when American leftists realized that the route to power was not through democracy. It wasn't through democratic participation because their ideas were not popular. So they said, let's capture the institutions, right? They had to change the culture that way. And the way you change the culture is you capture the institutions that transmit the culture and the norms to the next generations. And when, you know, you start this process and then fast forward 50 years and all of a sudden people turn around and like, whoa, 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 what, what's going on? And he cites the George Floyd moment when all of a sudden people looked around and they saw that left-wing racialist ideology and then left-wing sexual ideology was everywhere. And the American public suddenly realized and then asked in bewilderness or bewilderment, what happened? I didn't vote for this. I didn't want this. I didn't know this was coming. You remember the the you either you know if you were from if you lived through the '60s or if you've seen any of the uh, movies about the '60s, what do you remember about the leftist radicals? They were explicitly Marxist-Leninist. They were explicitly revolutionary. And they were explicitly violent. Not exactly a winning message. Okay. So uh, they translated these revolutionary principles into bureaucratic language. So we see the emergence of a bureaucratic morality, which has animated all of America's public institutions in the absence of any countervailing pressure. We see a rationalization of revolutionary ideology we see its absorption into the institutions first in the state institutions and then laterally into private institutions and in the u.s 
This bureaucratic ideology takes the form of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you know Latin, you know what that spells. DEI, right, means God. Right. That's not an accident, he says. All right, so what can be done? That's the question for conservatives. What can be done? All right, first off, um, there is a structural disadvantage for conservatives. <laughs> right? there, uh, they, we have to acknowledge this, right? Uh, there is a philosophical self-blindness or self-blinding, he says, because conservatives believe we can't touch the state. We can't use the state. This is taboo. He says, I would argue that to the contrary, it is time for American conservatives to begin in some sense to make peace with the state. We have tried to reduce the size of the state, and it has not worked for a century. And what I take as a guiding principle for this problem is to look back to the founding fathers. They believed in limited government. And again, I share that belief. We should do all we can to reduce the size of the state. But they also believed in statesmanship. They believed that the government had to stand for some principles. They believed that the government needed to protect the liberty of the people and secure their rights. And they didn't believe in a libertarian fantasy of a world beyond a state or a world without a state. The American anti-tax activist Grover Norquist famously said he wants the government to be so small you could drown it in a bathtub. He says, I don't think George Washington would have said that, though. That's an interesting juxtaposition. So one of the ways that we do this is, uh, this is one of the first uh, examples of it, school choice, universal school choice. He says these are common sense solutions, and they're going to yield a few results. And one result is that they're going to reduce the size of the state. It's not going to be immediate. It's going to take some time, right? But it will, he, he predicts. Every kid that exits the public school system and goes to a private option is going to be slowly reducing the monopoly of the state government. Now, by the way, I feel the need to point this out as well that uh, Christopher Rufo is at odds with a fellow by the name of James Lindsay, who uh, was the guy who did the, uh, you know, the fake papers. I've mentioned him several times on the program. Uh, he writes at New Discourses, and he is, uh, he's, a, he's an atheist. He was originally of the left. He has been, uh, he has been a, a warrior against this, you know, wokeism, this Hegelianism, postmodernism, critical consciousness. But he sees the uh, school choice vouchers, he sees it as, um, as counterproductive. He says, you're, you're not getting rid of the state. You're, you're, you're still using the state in order to fund education. But Christopher Rufo says that this will reduce the monopoly of the state government. He says it'll decentralize power as well. It takes power away from the bureaucracy, and it'll give it to families. And third, it provides the opportunity for a revitalization of religious communities, not mandated by the state, but in some ways enabled by the policy. He says you can have a greater pluralism of religious faith. And that's really the reason why we had a separation of church and state in the first place. It wasn't to eliminate faith from public life. 
but to enable a greater pluralism and a flourishing of faith in public life in a way that did not submit these questions to state repression or state decision-making. That was the original point. That's Christopher Rufo, and that's a wrap. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.